download thanks for the stream thanks for tuning in to episode number 127 of coming up next the podcast my guest this week is simon star double bass player who if you've ever been out to see some live music in melbourne chances are you would have come across him uh, at the top of the show i just like to thank well i'd like to thank all of you for for tuning in for listening uh, hopefully for subscribing to the show. If you haven't already subscribed, it's the easiest way to make sure that every episode ends up in your pocket, in your ears. Um, not the your ears are in your pocket. But if you head to uh, comingupnext.com.au, you can find all the links you need to make sure that you are subscribed to the show. Uh, and thanks to Sean Ogilvie for chatting with me last week uh, about his road to winning uh, an Oscar for his short film Stutterer. Um, pretty, pretty amazing conversation. Um, really grateful for him for being so transparent about the whole experience. Uh, Simon Starr, as I said, double bass player from Melbourne. Uh, he's lived uh, in Melbourne. He's lived in Israel. He's been living, uh, living the musician's life for uh, about twenty-five years now, and uh, yeah, just has some incredible insights. He's got a new group, Yid which is with uh, exclamation mark, Y-I-D exclamation mark, uh, new project of his, which is um, pretty, pretty incredible, pretty incredible uh, ensemble. It's a, uh, it's a 22-piece uh, of all kind of varying backgrounds. Um, we're going to go into that. We're going to talk about, you know, his career, um, the fundraising campaign that he's currently doing, the crowdfunding campaign for Yid to uh, to record their album, um, and you know the usual kind of philosophical ramblings. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more, you can find uh, you can find Yid on Facebook. And um, yeah, let's get into the interview. <laughs> I saw that um, that Yid are playing uh, at uh, Warm Adelaide in March next year. That's pretty incredible, especially considering that um, the you guys have only been sort of playing together for what most of this year, and barely that. Yeah, so right. uh, yeah, well, if you looked at it as a series of individual relationships, we've been playing together for some of the guys in the band have been playing together for thirty years. I've been playing with almost everyone in the band in one form or another for more than 20 years. So, despite the fact that it's a 22-piece band and we have only started... We, our first gig was in March this year. There are so many um, unspoken understandings amongst us uh, that though it's a band with a short life, it's it's really a, it's a series of relationships that have been going on for as I said, a long time. And that means that I just have to look at people in a nice way. <laughs> but I, I look at them and I know they know what I mean. Yeah. And they're going to do the thing that I'm, I'm... There's all those telepathic understandings you build up over years, decades of playing together. Yeah. 
you kind of hear about the that kind of symbiosis that exists within creatives as particularly uh musicians and probably sportsmen as well absolutely or sports people yeah. um and you know i guess it's the sort of thing that can only be built up over time and through a lot of playing together although i guess sometimes you also hear about those relationships where it's just on immediately absolutely so there are some of them within this band as well well there's a lot of people there's a lot of permutations possibilities but particularly in anything that relies on teamwork and particularly improvising. So you would have that with high-level classical ensembles, but rank-and-file classical players may not have this... They may not listen in the same way, but improvising musicians have to. And the sporting analogy is really apt because, you know, the, the, the guys in this band would play together a mixture between the German soccer team of the sort of mid-70s and the Brazilian soccer team of the, you know, 90s and early O's. A lot of flair and a lot of... a lot of There's a lot of room for self-expression and people are encouraged to do their thing, but everyone knows also what their job is. So, yeah, everyone... everyone I also embrace the total football thing of Cruyff, you know, the, yeah. the Dutch team, the where everyone... Everyone takes everyone's job if they need to. And that's what happens in this band. Someone, if I drop out, I know someone's going to play a bass line. And, and if, if a sax player or a trumpeter forgets the melody, I know that any number of people are going to back them up. I guess, um, you know, you've been playing uh, professionally and touring for, what, coming up to 25 years now in, uh, in yeah. Melbourne and, and around the world as well. Yes. Um, what was the kind of uh what was the pathway for you to that sort of point in 93 when you when you left VCA what was i guess was music something that was sort of threaded through your childhood or was it something that you came to a bit later well i i always loved music um i used to listen to records all the time I used to put on records my favorite thing to do i was either playing sport reading a book or um finding a band in my dad's record collection and putting on their records in chronological order <laughs> with headphones on and listening to them uh, just intently. Who did you listen to? A lot of Beatles, yeah. Beach Boys, Paul Simon, but a lot of jazz guys, Oscar Peterson particularly, Louis Armstrong. Um, my dad loves bluegrass, a lot of Israeli music. So a lot of, a pretty broad variety. He loves classical guitar as well. And... Um, so, you know, we, all, we there was a lot of singing in the house. It wasn't like a cliche of a gospel family growing up I and mean, sharecropping. But we did <laughs> sing a lot. Yeah. There was a lot of harmony. And I always loved music, but I, I never... I'd sort of taught myself guitar. I had some bass lessons when I was at school. I learned French horn for a little bit. But mainly things started for me when I started playing the double bass when I was 19 which was, I was already in second year at VCA. And then I found an instrument where the physicality of it matched because I love playing sport and none of the other instruments other than drums were that physical. There was that feeling of having to really at times wrestle and then at times dance with it. So I got to VCA and it was just really easy. I mean, it wasn't easy, 
as you know, I was the worst player in the year on any instrument when I got in there by a long way. But the easy part was I just loved it. It wasn't a struggle for me emotionally. It was a struggle physically at times, you know, a lot of the time. And then by the time I left VCA, I had eight residencies a week. And that sometimes I had 13 gigs a week in this first year I left. And I loved it. It was yeah. amazing. And then, so one thing led to another various, you know, in those 25 years, there have been many stages. There have been stages where I was touring a lot. There have been stages where I concentrated only on my own projects. There were stages where I just wanted to make money. And so I'd played a lot of weddings and corporate things. And then for the last 10 years, I've been fairly consistently engaged in just my own projects very little touring with other people but occasionally it, was, it coincides with the birth of my first daughter our first daughter I decided I, I didn't want my children to look back on me and, and think that I was a hack and I wanted them to see that I had I mean aside from my own innate drives and ambitions I wanted them to see that even in the arts as volatile and unpredictable and seasonal and ill remunerated a business as it is I wanted them to see that it's possible to make a life and it's a wonderful life and we may not have the second house we may not have the first house (laughs) or you know cars holidays overseas all that stuff but you know we there's a lot of wrestling and a lot of laughter and we sing gospel and we're sharecroppers yeah (laughs) yeah so just to track back for a minute what was the was the listening to the um, albums in chronological order? Was that a conscious decision, or was it like an instinctive kind of thing where you felt like you needed to understand from start to finish, as opposed to it just being random? Well, I remember. Um, so let's look at the Beatles as an example. I I had my favourites uh, with out of the albums mainly in order of the ones I listened to. Um, But then, by the time I was about 10 or 11, I felt like I had sort of... I'd listened to them hundreds of times by that stage, without exaggerating. And then I felt I needed to go deeper. And it wasn't like I thought, yes, you need to go deeper. It was just there was a yearning in me to immerse myself in, in music more. And so I'd with the Beatles for instance I'd, so I'd start with Please Please Me and then just revel in the in the journey that they went through and feel like I was going through it myself and then with every other band that I did that with particularly Oscar Peterson just uh, feeling that feeling like I was growing in my own very very immature way parallel to the enormous giant steps they were taking it was it was very comforting it was very comforting for me because uh when i was in secondary school i didn't have many friends and um and it was nice to feel like i had this whole other internal life and and that was i had all these mates they just didn't know that they were my friends yeah. and they were overseas international artists <laughs> who i looked up to a lot <laughs> yeah 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 i can definitely relate to that um do you remember the first time that you did play or that you performed or that you kind of uh, were really struck by the 
um, musical bug, I guess. Well, the very first time I performed was in prep. And um, I went to a state school, primary school for that one year. And uh, there was a drum corps that played a march every morning for assembly. And they were all in grade six. And I thought I'd learnt it, you know, after the first week or so. And I sort of knew how to do it. And I said to the teacher, can I do it as well? I didn't even have a drum, but I knew I could play it because I had heard it. Mm. And I remember playing it and feeling quite special. Uh, but then once I was up there, I thought, oh, that was all it was. I just, you know, do this thing that I've heard and everyone else can hear. It only really got exciting. Like By the time I was 16, I had performed, but it, it was shambolic to say the least. A lot of giggling. <laughs> and bum notes and general, you know, tomfoolery. It only got exciting once I went, I was living overseas after year 12 in Israel and I was busking with a friend of mine and we set ourselves the goal of busking until we'd, ha- we'd earned enough for a, like a large pizza each and a, and a litre of beer each. And some nights the challenge was there and people weren't, interested and I remember being excited by the idea of connecting with people like that just being a bit chutzpah dick <laughs> and getting in their face and sort of asking them what songs they wanted or following them and playing funny songs making songs up on the spot yeah and then it's obviously it's it's grown as I've gotten older and s- s- I suppose wiser and the level of interaction gets deeper and the satisfaction from that there are always new levels of that of that sort of thing, mm. and through throughout school and high school, was it, it was you said before that it was saying that you were actively pursuing and dabbling in lots of different instruments. What were your were your parents uh, kind of trying to push you in one direction, or were they just happy for you to find your way? My parents were uh, very. My dad was a, was like a frustrated musician. He was. He's a very, very musical person, but he never performed much on his instruments. And so he was very encouraging. But uh, mostly in my secondary school years, I don't remember being aware of anything my parents said, (laughs) (laughs) positive or negative. (laughs) I was in my own world. And I I don't really... You know, I used to hang around in the music school a bit at school, in secondary school, but I was just mucking around. I was just teaching myself stuff and... I mean, not teaching myself, just playing things and having fun. Uh, no, I mean, it, they probably did talk to me, but I, you know, I just, I was very much not a loner, but uh, just in my own world. Mm. How long did you live in uh, Israel for after you finished school? That was a year. It was a year program after after school. Was that a schnat? <coughs> it was a schnat year, yeah. Right. So it was with Netzer and... Um, Which is a Jewish youth movement. Jewish youth movement, yes. And uh, I mean, you know, I could have probably been anywhere realistically because the experience was based on being with my closest friends and just living away from home and being away from my parents and the opportun- first opportunity in my life to define myself as I wanted to be rather than somebody's son or brother or something like that yeah so yeah it was pretty wild what did you what do you feel like you kind of came away from that experience with 
Um, mainly relief that I didn't die <laughs> because <laughs> and because uh, well, that would have been what early it's 90s? first intifada. Yeah, right. It was late eighties. First intifada, and it was also um, but I did a, a quite a staggering number of really stupid, inadvisable things, and look, I mean, what I came away from that was that a growing sense that I that I could make my own choices in public because up until then I had plenty of thoughts and a vivid imagination but I didn't it was all very self-contained there was no manifestation of it and that year was the first time I started to think about or just instinctively just put stuff out there yeah so when you came back you um you went to VCA Mm -hmm. what was what was it like for you to be going into this I guess tertiary environment, but it's so creative as well. Um, well, there were a lot of like-minded souls yeah, uh, who thought nothing of me turning up in a caftan with nothing on underneath, a mohawk <laughs> with the Star of David shaved into the top of it. <laughs> it was, in fact, almost a bit yawn, ho-hum that I, you know, I was sort of... I was definitely on in the middle of the spectrum right. of behavior there. Uh, so that was wonderful to feel normal. Mm. Um, and it was, it was tremendously exciting to be exposed to all this stuff. I'd listened to heaps of jazz and I'd listened to heaps of music and there was heaps of music in my head, but I hadn't really expressed it. And so through a number of, you know, a number of different teachers and experiences playing an ensemble and learning about all that, I, I, for the first time had an outlet for the uh, extremely high levels of energy that were had been built up over the preceding 17 years or however long it was so yeah and look one thing I liked about it was also the academic side was not overly challenging and I actually I love academic stuff and so it meant I could cruise through that part of it and foc- really focus on the instrumental side, whereas everyone else was sort of not natural academics, and they were already good players. So I felt like I could just focus on the reason why I was there. Mm. Yeah, kind of do away with the concern. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, just be present to growing as a player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. completely. And then, you know... What was it? What was the school set up for in that sort of time? In terms of, you know, did you feel like when you came out of the school that you had that you were ready for the real world, or you know, did you feel like there were it was just kind of the beginning of your education? How did you sort of feel coming out of VCA? So a, m- a bit multifaceted the answer to that. The first thing to say is that um, I. The head of the head of the course was a guy called Brian Brown, who was a real trailblazer in the Australian jazz scene, and he was most insistent that everyone in our year and there was a high attrition rate because people couldn't hack it. There was he was most insistent that people find their own voice and create their own sound and not just copy the greats who'd come before us. Stand on their shoulders, fine, but jump off as well and see what what you could come up with yourself and um so that was extremely exciting it was extremely exciting because he was someone saying 
often angrily. <laughs> he'd stop you and say, yeah, I heard. I've, he'd say literally the sentences like this. Yes, we've heard that shit before. When you'd get up and play, you'd been rehearsing all week with your ensemble and then you get up and play in, in performance practice. We've heard that shit before. Stop now. Now, play me something that you, that means something to you. And so he would be angrily provoking us yeah. into being ourselves. So when I left VCA, I didn't think I've got to just be a faceless member of the mob. I've got to be me. And I... I feel like most of the people I went to VCA who sort of stuck it out came away with that message. And then, having gone out into the real world and discovering that, you know, not many people wanted to know the real me, such as it was an unformed sort of blob in those <laughs> days, um, I had to deal with the real world immediately. Fortunately, I liked playing a lot of different types of music, so it wasn't it wasn't hard for me to sort of navigate through that through some forms of commercial music and other forms of less less commercial music but it took you know it's taken so how well i'm 45 now and i've i graduated from vca 93 so i was 21 and i um uh it's taken me 24 years or maybe a little bit less maybe it started last year but to feel like i can comfortably combine folk bluegrass bebop Brazilian music, free jazz, noise music, electronic music, funk, everything that I love, I can comfortably combine them all and not feel self-conscious about it and just, uh, you know, and, and feel like this is a legitimate and accessible expression. So did you, I guess, jump into being a sessional musician once you kind of came out of uh, college or did you, were your plans to sort of go straight into making your own stuff. I've always had original projects going the whole time I've been doing stuff. But I would say that first year was an inter- like an internship. I I just played I di- I said yes to every single gig that was offered to me because it was all just so exciting while running my own bands. And my own band, I had a band called Burst and we used to perform quite a bit. We had residencies and all that sort of thing. Um and we rehearsed a couple of times a week. So, you know, it was it was always an ongoing thing. But I did a lot of sessional stuff, which peaked in about... Uh, so this is 93, I graduated. And by 2004, I dropped out of being a sessional musician. So I played with Joe Camilleri for five years and toured with him. And I played with Susie DiMarchi. I played with all these different people, Susie DiMarchi and Ian Moss. And... Um, and after, after that, I just thought I've had enough, which was when we decided to start having children, which is when I decided, I started thinking, I've got to do my own thing. So I, yeah, I jumped into the sessional thing, always had original projects, had a jazz, uh, like an instru- instrumental improvisational group called Frock that was in, we started about 96 and we, we toured Europe a couple of times, toured Asia a few times, put out eight albums of all original music. So this was all happening simultaneously, but um, I really devoted myself to it after that. What was it like the first time that you went on tour, you know, I guess traveling with your craft and with your work? Um, traveling without, with my own music um, as opposed to someone else's, uh, oh, it was tremendously exciting. This was also in the days of faxes <laughs> and uh, where, you know, a lot of festivals didn't have email addresses or so we'd write snail mail letters to people and just be waiting by the mailbox for them to write back yes you can play at our festival or faxing them and calling them at, at, at two in the morning to get the times right 
look, so the, the practical side of it was very interesting and exciting, but actually getting there, get, we played at the Montreux Jazz Festival a couple of times and that was amazing. It was absolutely amazing um, for so many reasons, but it was, you know, at the end of our second time in Asia, or our third, at the end of our first time in, in Asia, in Singapore, I just contacted the Singapore Ministry of the Arts and I said, we're stopping over in Singapore on the way through back from a tour in Europe. Do you have anything for us? We're a band, we play this sort of music. And they organized a concert for us in the St. Kilda Botanical Gardens and it was, there were 20,000 people there. And there were probably, I'm not exaggerating, 30 roadies helping us. Yeah, well. We were a five-piece band. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and we played on a thing that was like the equivalent of my music bowl with a moat around us and then this massive audience. And it was just unreal. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they knew who we were. They just thought there's a free concert in the park. And, um, but it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And that, that, that concert actually paved the way for us to come back to Singapore another, another once or twice. And well, I wouldn't say we had a massive audience, but we had an audience... So, yeah, <laughs> look, it was a real, real thrill. What was it like, uh, I guess, stepping out on stage for that and then also when you finished the gig? Well, it was slightly surreal because I, I, it was a vast sea of people and I knew they weren't there specifically for us. But it was surreal because the music we were playing was quite complicated. There were a lot of odd time signatures changing over bars and all this sort of thing. Uh so I knew that there weren't going to be people clapping their hands and singing along. But I looked out at the audience and people were smiling, people were moving their heads. And afterwards, a lot of people came up and told us how much they loved it. So, look, <laughs> it was a, tr a tremendous experience. While at the same time, I, I, at the time I knew, I could put it in the perspective of this is a little bit odd and not really real, but it's great. Mm. You mentioned uh, earlier, you know, about um, uh, how musicians are not remunerated, or you know, probably most creatives, artists, uh, in in the way that they might like to be. And I guess over your career, you've probably seen this quite vast uh, paradigm shift, almost in the way that artists do make their money. You know, from signing with a with a record label re, you know releasing stuff independently into streaming and now i guess the way that people make money is through touring and um merchandise sales um what's your kind of what, what's your opinion on the status quo of that at the moment uh i try not to think about the social implications of the way artists are treated in general as in, you know, people don't think nothing about buying a cup of coffee for seven bucks or five bucks, how much it is. But they 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 try and, yeah, it's an old cliche, they try and get anything creative that's released in the public for free. I try not to think about that and I just think, well, you've got to go where the money is. I've never, um, I've tended I've sort of shied away from anything that was too commercial, not because I'm a snob, but because I'm I'm very leery of um, the sort of uh, all the things that go along with that sort of success. Now, obviously, you know, you could 
easily argue that who knows if I would have gotten it one way or the other, but I just, there's something I find very alienating about the idea of people projecting their image onto you and you not being able to just be yourself. So to answer that question in a roundabout sort of way, I have avoided engaging with that side of things because I'm pretty private. Yeah. And one of those um, paradoxically shy people, you know, most performers are like that, that I know who are very open and out there on stage, but quite, uh, they need a lot of quiet time away from that. Uh, Is that to kind of, that's, I, I assume to kind of balance out the yeah uh, the personality swing or the en- the energy required but also the the creative part requires you know contemplation and a lot of meditative moments mm. and the performance is the opposite but so so yeah i mean just getting back to that question i i i mean touring and, and merch has always been a thing I actually so when we we lived in Israel from uh, 2009 to the end of 2015, and I was in a involved in a production, a a sort of a musical that I wrote with a woman, Ronit Kano, who's an amazing artist, absolutely incredible, and it 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 went from a complete grassroots thing on a shoestring budget to a cult hit to a, and just before we left, it was making the transition from underground hit to mainstream hit. And I used to really enjoy selling the CDs of the show after the show because I completely knew that every second of the show was awesome and that everyone loved every second, every time we performed it. So selling it was this wonderful thing, you know, there's lots of happy customers. Everyone's thrilled to, to, to be there. I haven't been in other bands where I felt every second was a hit, and I I wouldn't I would feel a bit weird about going out and flogging something that I didn't. I've loved every band I've been in. I've put out recordings and I've loved them all, but I couldn't look an audience in the eye, face to face outside afterwards and say, "I'm happy to take your money for more," because I because I know that what you got was unreal. So probably most people don't have these ethical (laughs) 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 considerations i'm sure they would just be happy to take the money and run yeah Uh, and i guess with social media and the way that uh things are put out into the world now you know there's a kind of direct access um i mean you guys for years you've been doing a crowdfunding campaign to raise money to record that's right your first album with yid yeah uh how uh, have you done crowdfunding before for other projects? I did crowdfunding for my last solo album, which I recorded in Israel. And that, I made the money. I mean, people were very generous and put in. Uh, sort of unbelievable to me. I was quite leery about it uh, because it felt like being a bit of a schnorrer, right. which is Yiddish for a beggar. <laughs> um, I comforted myself with the idea that I have nothing to lose other than my dignity and the other thought that, you know, um, all classical musicians that I admired were all, uh, you know, just one stage above prostitutes mm. musically. And they they lived, only lived on the 
patron patronage of wealthy people who wanted to have an artist's whatever prestige they have attached to their family name or something like that and so i felt less bad about it and then so because it was successful you know the second time i feel like i know how to do it a little bit better i definitely know how to do it better the next time i do it but um i'm always hoping not to have to do it Mm. i'm always hoping that each project becomes self-sustainable and yid is such an enormous thing so many people on stage that it's expensive but um at the same time it's uh i know that that the size of it and the the spectacle and the sound and the idea of it you know is is very captivating for a lot of people so i don't feel bad about asking for it and look to be honest so it's a crowdfunding thing that's on the internet and a lot of people feel fine about that because they don't have to front up to someone and say would you like to support this great thing that I'm doing but I've actually I don't feel bad about asking people face to face in letters in emails in because I actually think uh, it's a two way street getting back to the coffee thing from before and you know like for instance in Melbourne people really love that Melbourne's this great cultural city Um, but that culture has to come from somewhere and someone has to pay for it now artists most of the time pay for it themselves i've paid for everything i've done uh and you know like the crowdfunding thing that i for my last album that paid for 50 percent of what i ended up spending 50 percent, which i didn't have you know i've got three kids i'm a musician it's not it's not like i'm i have a bucket load of discretionary income to spend so uh, I feel fine about it I think part of that dialogue is people want to consume this culture they want to consume what we're about to do and I think that a lot of people will because it is fantastic music I mean it's a it's such a unique project it's such a unique it's a unique project you know the it's it's a 24 piece 22 22 piece I've shaved it down to 22 right, shaved <laughs> it down. um I mean it's a you know it's 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 a a mix of jazz and big band and um and and funk and you've got someone who's like freestyling Yiddish rapper yeah, at the yeah. top as well I mean there's electronica there's beats there's sampling there's big band horns there's also gypsy and klezmer in there as well it's incredible I mean it's uh, you know, in in a sense, it is that kind of melting pot of of Melbourne's Completely. creative sort of soul, and I think that you know, it's it's certainly something that I you know sh- would be very well received by um, by an Australian community, I would think, and also something that's probably very important culturally for you to be putting together and to be um, putting your own stamp on. Very much so. I I, I so you know, I was living in Israel and. I've never, I've always been proud of being Jewish, never been ashamed of it. But since, you know, it, there was a lot of anti-Semitism when I was growing up. And What area did you grow up in? I grew up in Burwood. Okay. But not just there. We had bags of shit thrown on our doorstep. We had people graffitiing our garage all the time. And just casual anti-Semitism, people who just don't know any better. But also at secondary school and as a musician, I've had a lot of it. And I, um, it's not like I want to strike a blow against those people. But I want to show people that how rich and wonderful Jewish culture is. 
And these, this particular area of Jewish culture that I'm in, that is in this band, is hilarious. And you know, a lot of the comedy that people take for granted around the world as, you know, what our standard is for funny comes from Yiddish humor, specifically from Yiddish uh, humor that's either been translated or sometimes not. Seinfeld, Mel Brooks, uh, Woody Allen, all these people. It's all, this is all based on Yiddish humor. And so these songs are actually really funny. And I'd like, pe- and so we've, we've only done four or five performances in this less than a year that we've been around. And already I know that there have been people who've said, what's that song about? And and what's that word mean? All that sort of thing. And I've been learning words because I don't speak Yiddish fluently, not even close. And uh, that excites me to, because for a long time it's been a dead language and it's experiencing something of a renaissance. What are some of the, your favorite words that you've learned? Um, I like geflecht, right. which means is the word for a woman who is sort of, she's achieved her appearance potential. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I like um, gefer- uh, what is it? Gefährlich. It's kind of terrifying. Uh, there's so many great words, but it's more the concepts. You know, Yiddish is. It wasn't an academic language. It was a language of the street, of the ghetto, and um, and so there's a lot of fairly coarse insults in there, but they're very imaginative, and. One of my favorites. I can't remember how to say it exactly, but it is um, may your <laughs> if um, if someone uh, I'll, I'll, if someone farts, who is an obnoxious talker. There's a Yiddish expression for as below, so above, <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's <laughs> it's very succinct yeah. <laughs> and very dry, you know. <laughs> There's, you know, there's, there's all, all sorts of things that to do with the Jewish obsession with the digestive system right. that uh, <laughs> that come out in um, in in these in in words and songs and and it's it's kind of like I feel like the Yiddish uh, language came out of the ghetto and the ghetto came was an, an oppressed period of the Jews and they they had very little respect for authority of any authority the rabbis the the people who were ruling over them and the way they protested was by humor and so a lot of the songs we play are very disrespectful both to the jewish religion to the outside world it's you know thumbing thumbing their nose at everyone because their lives were absolutely shit yeah and they had to find they had to uh, remind themselves of their humanity somehow give themselves some dignity by having one up over whoever was telling them what to do Mm. So yeah, I, I feel it's important language, culture, and music to communicate, and doing it in this way, hopefully, will just interest a lot of different people. Yeah, but it's uh, is there a it's it's on Indiegogo, yeah? It's on Indiegogo. A yid, yid is with an apostrophe after it. Right. Is, no, not an apostrophe. An exclamation mark. Yeah. An exclamation mark afterwards, and then some other word, dance or something. But if you do Indiegogo, yid exclamation mark, you'll find us. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I read a quote that you uh, that you made, which kind of goes back a little bit um, to uh, your comment about um, the performer on stage and needing that kind of quiet time. Uh, and I wonder if it kind of relates to this to this band as well, where you talked about how 
uh, art doesn't need to be um, art doesn't need to come from suffering. Um, and I guess that's you know the, you you feel like a fairly well balanced human being. Purely on the surface. Purely on the surface. There's <laughs> <laughs> a dark cynicism boiling underneath. I don't know about dark, but there's you know I'm I'm you know there's there's definitely a strain of madness. Yeah. Going through me a fairly broad and deep one. <laughs> well, I suppose I suppose what's your ta- like you know you yourself are a teacher now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you came from this kind of very rich uh, arts college in Melbourne. I guess to kind of round out the conversation, what do you kind of teach people about, uh, you know, creating their own their own voice and, and kind of nurturing that and, and putting that out into the world? Does it, does it need to come from suffering or can it come from somewhere else? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think it, it necessarily needs to come from suffering and I, I do reject the notion that um, the, the, the cliche of the artists tortured and you know strung out on drugs and alcohol and and can only that can communicate only one aspect of existence and there's so many other ones and you know it is easier I find it easy as a default position when I'm a bit sad to write something sad but that doesn't inspire me when I'm feeling up and I'm not remotely bipolar I'm normally pretty pretty cheery sort of guy so I want to have something that speaks to me in those times which is 95% of my life so I mean the changing point for me was meditation when I started meditating which was when I was about 23 or 24 and through that I discovered that the possibility of surrendering to meditative aspects in music and then I could accept and sort of understand the joyous aspects of music a bit better. It allowed me to be less attached to the to quantifying the emotional content. Anyways, okay, I'm gonna just summarize that because I'm I can I, I feel like I'm crapping on. No, no, I like no, <laughs> no. But um, so when I talk to students about this sort of thing, most of the students I'm talking with are still at the stage of you know, accumulating uh, fundamentals. But I try and always encourage them to just stop thinking they need to do something for someone else. Stop trying to be someone else. It's it's, uh, the thing that Brian Brown left with me. Uh, Unfortunately, he's dead now. He was was really a great human being, uh, very inspiring for me. But also, you know, I got the same thing when I saw Queen, when I saw Freddie Mercury in 1983 or whenever it was, and when I saw Stevie Wonder, when I saw Prince, and when I saw Joe Zarvinal, and when I, all the great people, Herbie, that I've seen, and, and, and I see just how, how comfortable they are in their own skin, regardless of whether it's flamboyant like Freddie Mercury, or spiritual and joyous like Stevie, or inter, deeply intellectual European cultural like Joe Zarvinal, there's there's this thread of the all these people, they clearly they don't give a shit, and like Joe Zarvinal said, I went to he gave a little class at VCA. It was when I was at VCA, and he, he gave a class and he said, what I do is I just go and meet people. That's how I practice music these days. I meet people and I try and connect with them, and I listen to their stories, and that helps shapes shape my own 
sense of perspective about the world, but also through that I get to navigate and define who I am as well. I mean, you can do that through a lot of contemplation, but if you do it through contemplation, too much contemplation, you can you run the risk of defining yourself but not relative to anything else. And if you do it only by being in the world and, and not having any time for yourself, you just become a, an amalgam of everyone else, which in simplistic terms we are anyway. But I think there needs to be some sort of balance between the two. So I, I, you know, I encourage my students just be honest and be honest with themselves mainly and not be afraid to, to express themselves. I, I try and force them, never physically, but through various cajoling and emotional blackmail <laughs> to get them to dance. Because one, one thing that I loved about education in Israel is um, tertiary education in the jazz course. The first class, first day, first class, my friend Steve Peskoff, who runs the, partly runs the jazz course in Jerusalem, he'd put on some music and just make everyone get up and dance. And he'd and say, this is what it's about. Forget about all your intellectual wankery. Forget about all the scales you can play and how fast you can move your fingers. This is what it's about. You're a human being. The first thing we respond to is a pulse. And that's, that's, a, that's a physiological response. It's not an intellectual one. Get into it. And then I have a mate, a piano player called Omri Moore, he makes all his st- students dance and he makes them walk and try and walk with a bit of funk. And that I love that. It's, it's you know, dancing is joy. It doesn't always have to be. It can be a lot of emotions, but the act of activating your body is very exciting for me. And so I try and get them to remember that whatever it is they're doing, there has to be some of them in it. Otherwise, it's just... What, what are they doing it for? It's a waste of a life, it yeah. seems. Yeah. It seems to me from the outside looking in that Yid is very much, uh, you know, not only yourself, but, you know, all of the players. Uh, everyone's kind of basically living, you know, walking that talk, um, you know, putting pieces of themselves into this, you know, very kind of personal um, project. When does the uh, when does the, the crowdfunding ends on... the crowd? Well, the crowdfunding originally was going to end in a couple of weeks, but I extended it because... There are extra phases that we need to finance, so um, it's end, it's now ending mid to late Jan. Yeah, cool. Um, but we're going to start recording next week. Oh, we're awesome. doing the um, we're having a day of rehearsal and setup, and then a day of recording. And it's ambitious. We're going to try and record seven songs in one day, um, <laughs> which that's very ambitious. Very ambitious. But the nature of the band is such that looseness and improvisation is part of the deal yeah and these guys and girls i know they're good enough and um open enough to not get ruffled by if there's a bum note here or there it they know that it's not that's the big picture that's not important at all that that's actually going to be a bit of character yeah and where can people find uh find it on facebook and uh, on twitter more information about Yid. Facebook, yes. I don't. I'm not. I haven't, haven't entered the Twitter sphere. Twitter sphere. Yes. Um. Uh. Facebook, and soon we're going to get our own website up and running, and maybe we'll enter Twitter. I don't know. <laughs> It'll have to be someone probably half to a third of my age right. doing that though, because I gather that they like that sort of stuff, yeah. and I don't really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter's very fast paced. Yeah. Uh, well, good luck with the uh, with the crowdfunding and with the recording next week. And thank you uh, for hanging out and 
sharing your story with me. Um, I I finish all of my podcasts with the same question and the same sentence to go into that question, uh, which is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Well, to anyone who knows me well, they would know that very little is needed to make me silly. I'm pretty, uh, you know, (laughs) as I said, there's a streak of madness there and it's, it's, it's a thin veneer that protects it. <laughs> so, you know, like, I'm. I'll give you just. I'll give you one last example. I like talking in accents, just just by myself. And once I was in New York, I was learning off this. There's a great bass player in New York called Gary Peacock, and I was having some lessons with him. And after three days in New York, before I met up with him, I realised I'd been talking to myself in various New York accents as I was walking up and down the street, <laughs> looking like a classic New York nutcase. Um, or neurotic Jew. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And just talking to myself. And and then all of a sudden I thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm just sort of playing all these characters out. And it mirrors one time Sarah and I, Sarah, my beloved wife, we were traveling in China. And the entire... Well, so we were there for two months. In the first three weeks, I only spoke to her in this you know, what my children consider a racist Chinese accent. And um, after three weeks, she cracked <laughs> and said, who are you? Like, where, where's Simon? You know, like, <laughs> and I um, I just realized that it was a bit over the top, but, you know, silly. It, you know, it's, it's almost my middle name. Yeah. Well, that, that's pretty silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Simon. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Al.